0: Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started, okay? Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to open up your word and really discuss and apply ourselves to a topic that is very much uh, on your heart, especially these days. We thank you for the wonderful gift of uh, marriage and of family and of parenting and for the roles within that. And we are grateful for the fact that, Lord, you have not been... um, left us confused about what you desire, about your design. And so, Lord, we want to make sure that we get back to your design. That is for your glory and for the good of your people. So much of the suffering that we see in our world today and the sorrow that we see and the brokenness in families all over our country and all over our world, but even in particular just thinking about our own country. We're going to see in a minute uh, some of these statistics. Lord, we know that You desire that people would follow Your design for the sake of Your glory and our good. And so, Father, help us to apply ourselves to these things. Even as believers in the church, I pray that we might take these things seriously, that this applies for married people. This applies for those who are now, uh, Lord, um, uh, empty nesters. This applies for single people looking to be married in the future. These principles are very much transferred to every single one of those roles. And so I pray that it would be useful and beneficial for us individually, as families, and as a church. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hey, well, make sure that you have your Bibles, okay? I'm going to put this, some of the Scriptures up on PowerPoint, but also preferably make sure that you're not depending on the PowerPoint to not have your Bibles open or electronic devices. You can also open your Scriptures there. Of uh, this first session, um, I've titled it The Crises and Foundation of Marriage. Okay, so it's a little bit twofold. Kind of want to highlight uh, right off the bat some of the, the crises that we're facing. None of these things are going to be shocking to you guys. Maybe some of these stats are going to um, open up your eyes a little bit more to what's happening, not only in our country, but even in, in the context of professing um, believers' lives, in the context of the church. Obviously, in the church, you always have people who are genuine believers, right? But then you also have people who attend churches who are not Christians. They're professing Christians. Right, but some people are deceived. Other people, obviously, are are know that they're not Christians. So when I say broad evangelical circles, I'm, I'm speaking broadly, okay, um, about those who are professing believers amongst those who are genuine believers. All right, but some of these are, some of this is really highlighting and underscoring the problem that we have. That's why I called it the crisis and foundation of marriage. Um, there is a horrific attack on the family, right? Um, over the history of the world, there have been some horrific attacks if you 're a historian, maybe you know about the sack of Rome in a d four ten right by Germanic tribes. there was a three day siege that was the uh, a time when um, rome was was sacked and invaded. That was a major horrific attack that happened then in seventeen seventy six there was this Battle of Trenton. How many of you know about that battle? yeah. On Christmas night, General George Washington crossed the icy Delaware River to lead some 2,400 Continental Army troops on an unexpected raid against German mercenaries in Trenton, New Jersey. And you know how that. from that point on the rebel army knew, right, that the most professional army in the West could be beaten. So that was another big attack. 1941, anybody know what happened in 1941? Right, yeah, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. There was a morning assault by the Japanese army on the U.S. naval base in Hawaii. Changed the shape of the already raging World War II context. And it brought America into war, right? Which ultimately would change the outcome of the war. So there are, even from history, there have been some horrific attacks that that are historical, um, that people read about and that we can discuss together. But as horrific, brethren, as those attacks have been in history none are greater in the last few decades in particular than the attack on God's institution of the family, right? More than ever before, God's design for marriage and for the family is under attack, viciously attacked by the government, right? By the media, entertainment, even within the church. It's evident that marriage and family, families are under attack. And this is a very satanic kind of attack. Here's one. Particular quote that I wanted to put up. for Oh, great. Works pretty good. Thank you, Mr. Blakey. For the first time in history, Western civilization is confronted with the need to define the meaning of the terms marriage and family. What until now has been considered a normal family, made up of a father, a mother, and a number of children, has in recent years increasingly begun to be viewed as one among several options which can no longer claim to be the only or even superior form of ordering human relationships. The Judeo-Christian view of marriage and the family, with its roots in the Hebrew Scriptures, has to a significant extent been replaced with a set of values that prizes human rights, self-fulfillment, and pragmatic utility on an individual and societal level. It can rightly be said that marriage and the family are institutions under siege in our world today. And that with marriage and the family, our very civilization is in crisis. That's, by the way, from a book by a guy named Andreas. Beautiful name, the first part of that, Andrea. But it's Andreas. (laughs) That's my wife, by the way, so don't get, you know, some of you who don't know us. Andrea is my wife's name. But this is Andreas Kostenberger, with a K, in a book called God, Marriage, and Family. And I agree with him in what he's saying here. You and I are aware of the current crises, right? Many today are attacking the very foundation of marriage and what constitutes marriage and family. Many today, you probably have talked to some people who sort of view marriage as an outdated, old fashioned tradition, an old relic of the past. How many of you have had experiences where you've interacted with people talking like that? I have multiple conversations, by the way, half of those in the church, churches where I've ministered. So mark that. So Dave and young people are told that marriage is a parental tradition. That We call that a, now a societal construct that has been passed down from age to age. Marriage, they are told to push back and break free of the bondage that is called traditional marriage and home, home life, right? We're living in a society where people are fighting for moral autonomy. Freedom is the name of the game. And they worship the idol of pleasure outside of marriage which is obviously biblically fornication right sex outside of the bonds of of marriage well this rejection of the family and of marriage as God has defined it has led to some devastating consequences okay next time I'll make sure that I get that a little bit bigger for you guys but you're welcome to take a picture of that the Bible says that marriage is a grace of life a blessing a gift but number one in the U.S. more than half of all couples have moved in together before getting married The divorce rate for couples that live together first is significantly higher than those that do not. Think about that. Number two, for women under the age of 30 in the U.S., more than half of all babies are born out of wedlock. Three, the U.S. has the highest divorce rate in the entire world. While stats vary, it is estimated that the current divorce rate is between 40 to 50% of marriages that end in divorce. This means that one in two marriages will end in divorce according to these stats, which were, by the way, uh, four or five years ago, okay? So they're probably worse now. Number four, the marriage rate in the United States has fallen uh, to an all-time low. As of 2013, it is sitting at a yearly rate of 6.8 marriages per 1,000 people. The Bible says that fathers should train their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, but number five, approximately one out of every three Children in the U.S. lives in a home without a father. Just think about some of the implications of that, right? Some of us grew up in, um, we call it the hood back in L.A. I don't know what they call it in Washington. But we did, my wife and I, and some of you you grew up in more of the inner city, inner city contexts. Well, that just leads to all kinds of chaos, doesn't it, when the father is absent? Rebellion, drug addiction, alcoholism, adolescent suicides, gang-related activity in certain contexts in our country. Number six, close to 50% of high school students have intimate relations outside of marriage. Number seven, the U.S. has the highest teen pregnancy rate in the entire world. Twice as high as Canada, more than three times as France, and more than seven times as high as Japan. The Bible says that children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, that children are a blessing, right, from God, from the Hand of a good and gracious God, but number eight, instead of being raised by parents, children are being raised by movies, televisions and video games. The average young American will spend 10,000 hours playing video games before the age of 21. Think about that: 10,000 hours, right? These are stats. those are always statistics are always things that we need to um, take with a grain of salt. I realize that, but you know of the problem, right? So many kids are growing up now. What they know more than a relationship with a parent is the, back of the top of the parent's head because the parent is always looking down on some kind of device. That's what, we, that's what we're facing right now. Uh, number nine, there are more than 3 billion or 3 million reports of child abuse in the U.S. every single year. The U.S. has the highest child abuse r- death rate in the developed world. The Bible says that children are a gift from the Lord again, but, number 10, in a massacre that is almost unspeakable, more than 56 million American babies have been slaughtered in this country since 1973. Roe versus Wade. Approximately 47% of the women that get an abortion each year in the United States have also had a previous abortion. The number of American babies killed by Adoption each year is roughly equal to the number of U.S. military deaths that have occurred in all of the wars that the United States has ever been involved in combined. Think about that. That's staggering, isn't it? Number, uh, or last one here. About one-third of all American women will have had an abortion by the age of 45. I think you get the point, right? The various stats... I know that stats are not always indicative of a situation, but these stats tell a story, don't they? They tell a, a terrible story of how we have gone away from God's design. That's really the core problem, brethren, and that's why we're doing this series. Because we need to be, as the church, Bible-believing Christians, we need to be different than the world and looking for answers from God's Word and from the Lord, the Lord Himself rather than from the evil world system in which we live. And these stats obviously are a symptom to a deeper problem, right? What's the deeper problem? It's a spiritual problem, isn't it? There's a spirit type of spiritual decadence and darkness in our country, if we could just apply it to our own country, that is just staggering right now. We have a spiritual problem on our hands. Listen to what our brother Andreas Kostenberger says again. The current cultural crisis, however, is merely symptomatic of a deep-seated spiritual crisis that continues to gnaw at the foundations of our once-shared societal values. If God the Creator, in fact, as the Bible teaches, instituted marriage and the family, and if there's an evil being called Satan who wages war against God's creative purposes in this world, it should come as no surprise that the divine foundation of these institutions has come under massive attack in recent years. Ultimately, we human beings, whether we realize it or not, are involved in a cosmic, excuse me, in a cosmic spiritual conflict that pits God against Satan, with marriage and the family serving as a key arena in which spiritual and cultural battles are fought. If then the cultural crisis is symptomatic of an underlying spiritual crisis, the solution likewise must be spiritual, not merely cultural. See what he's saying? Simply saying what Ephesians chapter 6 says, right? That the battle is not against, what? Flesh and blood. The battle is a spiritual battle. It's a cosmic battle. It's a spiritual war that we are facing. Now, while this attack and the dismissal of God's beautiful family is a serious issue in the world, brethren, it is more sad that this deterioration is evident in the church. As I told you, I mean, I've been a pastor for a number of years now in various contexts, you know, a quarter of the time, there are professing believers sitting in front of me, saying, spewing out some of the same things, right? Going away from what the Bible says regarding marriage and roles within marriage and um, even uh, parental kind of, kind of wisdom, taking their cues from the world system rather than going to the, to the Word of God. And so these are professing believers. I don't doubt that some of them were genuine believers. But that then infiltrates the church, Right? And the church is influenced. And so I think that we need to talk about some of these skyrocketing statistics and divorce rates because they are also very much a reality in, in so-called Christian contexts. Okay? Where we're seeing so much of this taking place. We hear in churches, for instance, so-called Christians reasoning that it is okay to leave your spouse if, because they have fallen out of love with them. You ever hear that? Well, one time I felt love for them, but I've fallen out of love with them. Right. I remember sitting down with one guy and he was just thrashing his wife. You know, I just don't feel like I, I love her. Anymore. I've fallen out of love with her and said, what you are is you're out of your mind, you know, <laughs> fall out of love. And it was one of those moments where I, it was almost like I had to take out the, the, the heavy duty staff, you know, to give the guy a little bit of a spiritual spanking from God's word like you don't fall out of love. Right. Love is not just a feeling. Right. Love includes our emotions. But love is fundamentally what? A committed action, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 13, love is, those are all action verbs. Now that's not to say, well, well just go through the motions and, and perform these actions for your spouse. No, your emotions should be there. And when they're not, you should repent of that, right? I want to make sure that, that I, I, I'm affectionately serving my wife. You want to make sure that you're affectionately serving your husband. But at the end of the day, when the emotions are not there, we don't just say we've fallen out of love and therefore we can't serve them anymore, right? We don't love them. We want to walk away from our marriage. I've heard things like, you know, if your spouse is not satisfying you as before, then God wants you to be happy, so it's okay to leave that marriage. How many of you have heard things like that in different ways? Yeah, man, right? And people think that the ultimate goal of marriage, right, even in churches, is that you be happy, is that I would be happy. Now, does God want your spouse and you to be happy? What do you guys think? Absolutely. God wants us to be happy, and we should desire to make our wives happy. Wives, you should desire to make your husbands happy. Absolutely. But it's happiness as God defines it, right? And ultimately, here's, a, here's the problem. If your spouse is your all in all, right? This is what's wrong with the whole terminology of, I just found, I found my soulmate, you know? I found my soulmate. I get it, right? This is a very intimate relationship. It's exclusive. I get why people say that, but the the, the deficiency with that kind of a statement is that you can, you, you can never find somebody who's going to be your all in all. Only Christ is sufficient, yes? Colossians chapter 2 says that we are complete in Christ. Christ is our sufficiency. And to the extent that we live that out and we abide in Jesus in our marriages as well, then out of the overflow of that, we're going to be able to minister to our spouse, right? Right? So the answer when you are deficient in your love for your wife and vice versa is to go back to the foot of the cross and say, where am I going wrong as far as me not abiding in Christ like I should, right? But we hear this kind of stuff in in churches today, you know? Um, They're not satisfying me anymore, so I'm going to leave my marriage. Same thing with parents uninvolved in the lives of their kids is almost as common in so-called Christian homes, right? No longer in many professing Christian homes are our our, parental voice, the loudest voice for those kids. Now they're taking their cues from society, right? Video games, friends at school, right? Whatever contexts, but parental voice to be the loudest voice for your children, right? We're to be bringing our kids to the word of God. in in the sense of of just sort of a, not in the sense of mediatorial work like Jesus can only do with a capital M, but we are in a sense, until a certain age, right, when they mature and they're able to sort of spread their wings and and take off on their own, we are leading them to the foot of the cross, right? We're pointing them, we're we're seeking to be the loudest voice in the lives of our children. But in many uh, professing Christian homes, that's not the case anymore. And that's really sad. What about men? Men obviously not fulfilling their God-given role to lead in the home, right? We have a lot of passive men in churches, disengaged men in different kind of men, men who are complacent, idle, lethargic. And brethren, to some extent or another, all of us men have struggled with these things, haven't we? I have as well. I've had to repent of these things many a time in my marriage and in my parenting of our five kids that we have. So, But there are men who live here, and very comfortably so, very much like the world, taking their cues from the world and the examples that they see in society. And I think with the whole feminization of our society of men, right, and of masculinity, we see this even more prevalent, where men now are spiritual wimps, many men. They don't lead, right? They don't take initiative. They don't serve their families anymore. They really have abdicated their responsibility to lead in the home and in the church. That's a problem that infiltrates the church. So to us as elders, I think it is super important that we deal with these kinds of things in the context of the church, even whether in an equipping class or informally as we preach and we teach brethren, as we counsel, right? Because you need to be armed and equipped, and you need to understand the dangers that are out there even more so today, right? Than never before, I think, because of social media and just ways of communication technologically today. What about women? Women are buying into the whole feminist mindset, right? That to be a submissive wife and a mother in the context of the home is an attack on their equality. How many of you have talked to people that have that kind of mentality? I've talked to many people like that, brother, and so have you, right? It's an attack on their equality. It's oppressive. It's abusive, right? Right? to be a wife and a mother in the context of the home, to be sure, and we're going to get into this at various points, there is abuse that happens in churches. Yes, there is. But to call everything, blanket statement, abuse, even you living as a submissive wife and mother in the context of the home, well, that's oppressive and that's abusive. Be careful, right? Things are nuanced. We need to look at Scripture and then flesh out the implications of what the principles of scripture, right? And deal with things with wisdom. We're going to get into some of those topics um, as we um, sort of unpack some of these things. But I think a lot of ladies are buying into this in our world and it infiltrates into the church as well. Women are losing sight of their amazing call to be a helper suitable to their husbands as unto the Lord of the amazing gift and call of being a mother, right, and leaving her mark on society as she mothers children in the context of a home, right? A lot of women are discontent with being wives and mothers. I've sat in front of ladies who have told me, is this all I'm good for, Pastor Kempis? Is this it, right? Is this it? And they want to leave the marriage? Or is this all that I was created to do? And obviously there's some unique situations there where there has been on the part of a husband a type of conception of of what a marriage uh, comprises, right? That it was sinful and wrong and distorted. There are those cases. So we need to use wisdom in individual cases. But then there's other ladies who come in with this kind of mentality. It's like, you know what? Let's look at God's word, right? This is actually a good thing within biblical parameters and your husband using God-given delegated authority parameters in a way that honors the Lord, this is a, a, let's talk about your role and how you can flesh this out in a way that is more meaningful, that glorifies God and that is good for you, right? So, There's a lot of counseling that happens in those contexts as well. Listen, ladies, there is a greater calling in life than being a wife and a mother. You know what it is? Being a daughter of the King, Amen. Being a child of God. But after this, and flowing from this, if God has called you to be a wife and a mother, and this is your, this is what God has called you to. This is your highest calling, right? Unless there are gracious, and I, and I use my words carefully. There are there are gracious exceptions from God, right? We call it the gift of singleness, right? Uniquely, some people have that, and that is not God giving people the short end of the stick. Did you hear that? That is a gift of God, too. But unless you have the gift of singleness, if you've been called to marriage and to even raise a family, and God has given you the gracious ability to be able to do that, God hasn't given you the short end of the stick, wives and mothers. All right? We need to be content in those. And obviously, there's a lot of counseling in individual cases as we unpack some of that in the context of individual homes. This is a high privilege, but we're buying into a lot of this mentality, right? And so the church, designed by God to be a light in the world, right, through even displaying and exemplifying a loving family and what a loving family should be like, is terribly deficient. And Satan is very happy about this, isn't he? Ultimately, he can't He can't overcome God's plans and purposes in the world, right? But he can distort them. He can rob us of our joy, right? We could be saved and be in Christ and yet not experience the joy and the fulfillment and the sense of meaning and purpose that comes from following God's word. So he strips us of our joy. But oftentimes we allow that by not exposing ourselves to what God says. And so we have this huge problem. This is the crisis that we face But thank God, brethren, that it is not without hope. Amen? Because of the gospel. In Christ, God is making things new, right? And so it's not rocket science. What's the solution? What's the solution to this crisis? The solution is that we return and be reminded again at what God says concerning marriage and family, right? Family, marriage, parenting is not to be shaped by our culture, the media, the government, or by you and I. It is defined and shaped by the Word of God. And that is not just a, a fighting fundy statement, okay? Some people tell like, us, just, you're just a Bible thumper, Pastor Kempis or Kempis, right? Some people say, you're just a Bible thumper. Listen, God has given us his good and perfect word for his glory. And listen, for your good, for your benefit. I don't know if you guys have read the book by Jerry Bridges called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. How many of you have read that book? Man, if you have not read that book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts by Jerry Bridges. That is a book well worth your reading. Um, and in that book, I love how Jerry Bridges constantly reminds us of the fact that God does everything for his glory and for our good. Everything for his glory and for our good. That's true in terms of his instructions for marriage and family as well, brethren. Right? It's not just commands that are stripped from the love that comes from the Father. Right? Don't ever strip God's commands, uh, detach them from the, the law giver. The lawgiver is loving. He's gracious. He's good. So if he has given certain commands for us to follow, they come from the heart of a loving God. Amen? So the, the answer is really to come back to the foundation and what God has designed from the beginning. So I want us to do that. Okay? We're going to spend um, I don't know the next 20 minutes looking at this a little bit and let's see how far we get. Okay? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 together. Okay? Turn with me in your Bibles and I'm going to put this up on the screen as well. Genesis 1, 26-31. As you know, Genesis 1 is the, uh, the account of God creating the universe. Ex nihilo, which means what? Out of nothing, right? There were no, pre- there were no pre-existing materials or substance. God created the, the universe in six literal 24-hour days. There's no reason exegetically, as we look at the Bible, take it at face value for why we should take it in another way right? Six 24-hour days. Ex nihilo, out of nothing he created the universe without any pre-existing materials or anything. And then in verses 26 through 31, we're told that he creates man and woman who are the crown of his creation. Look at verse 26 there. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice how four different times in here, and I underline those for you on the screen, he talks about our image, our likeness, Verse 27, in his own image, in the image of God. You think he's trying to make a point? Right? Man and woman are the crown of God's creation. Right? Now what does it mean here that God created man in his own image? What does that mean? I think it means primarily two things. And you can sort of hang many things on these two primary rods here. It means, first of all, relational and rulership. It means that man... Human beings are relational creatures. That's what it means that he is created in God's image. He's a relational creature, right? We have personality, intellect, thinking faculties as human beings. We have emotions, passions. We feel things. We have volitional capabilities. We're able to make decisions. We are relational beings. And that flows from the nature of our triune God, right? We believe in one God eternally existing as three persons, right? We have one God, one in being, essence, and na- His nature, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those titles of Father and Son are not sort of like, you know, the, the, the three members of the Trinity were sitting around from eternity past. and Okay, who's going to be the Father here and who's going to be the Son? Those are real titles. Father, Son, in terms of how they relate to one another, right? And the Spirit of God. And so there's this relational reality uh, concerning our triune God. And to be made in the image of God human beings means that we are relational creatures like him. Okay? This is why fellowship in the church is so important for us. This is why we encourage you to be in community together. Right? We are one body. And we are in relationship with one another. What is discipleship? Intentional relationships for the purpose of growth in Christ in the context of the, of the local church. Intentional relationships for the purpose of growth in Christ in the context of the local church. That flows from the, the fact that we are made relational creatures like our Heavenly Father and we need relationships. But secondly, I also think that it means rulership. Rulership. Notice this, right? We were given authority. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Four or five times their implied verb rule, right? Rulership is what it means to be made in the image of God. God has made us ruling creatures. Now, we are not ruling over Him, right? Autonomous. Um, we are accountable to Him. We are stewards of His creation, if you will. We are caretakers of God's creation, And furthermore, God wants us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which means that he wants them to procreate and subdue the earth. Look at verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then he talks about giving everything for their enjoyment. So Genesis 1, right? Is Here we're getting, getting the the big picture and purpose of God for, for man. But then in Genesis chapter 2, this is expanded upon in terms of the grand purpose that he has. And he gets even more detailed and specific as far as how man and woman are to be joined in carrying out that purpose of rulership, right? So keep in mind, to be made in the image of God has to do with being relational, right? We're relational creatures. And secondly, it has to do with being... Uh, given the the, um, the ability, the delegated authority to, to rule over God's creation. But now we get into how man and woman are to be joined in carrying out this particular purpose in this world. Look at chapter 2 and verses 15 through 17 of Genesis, okay? If you want to turn there. This is very interesting and captivating. Verse 15, And then the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, "From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for and eat, eat from it, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die." So God gave man a responsibility, right? What is it here according to verse 15, to cultivate and keep the garden, right? And then a command, right? In verses 16 and 17, he's saying, you have full freedom, Adam. You can partake of anything here. This is really important because even in counseling, oftentimes when we're talking to, to people about their problems or maybe you've had this issue as I have where we begin to function like practical atheists, right? In the midst of a struggle or a sin. This is one of the key things. We begin to view God as a restricting, restrictive God, don't we? He's an ogre. He wants to withhold things from me. That can happen even if if you desire to be married or you desire, you're not content in your marriage, right? God is restricting me. He hasn't given me the freedoms that I thought He would give me. That, brethren, is something to repent of at the heart level, at the core of who we are, right? And we get a little bit of that later on in Genesis chapter 3, where uh, uh, the serpent, Satan, is basically appealing to Eve and saying, Has God really said that? I mean, God wouldn't really withhold from you that one thing, would He? But notice here, verse 16, He's saying from any tree of the garden. God is lavish in His freedom that He gives us, right? Within the parameters that He defines, right? So there's this command, full freedom to eat from, from any tree in joy, God is saying. But one restriction, lest there be consequences in verse 17, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for it in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Super important. Now, the key up to this point is this there is no woman, right? There is no woman. The man is commanded to care for and profit from the garden and warned about disobeying God's command. So man has a purpose, but man is incomplete, right? Look at Genesis chapter, it should be Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Not one there. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, That was its name. Verse 20, The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. This is really significant, brethren. Notice that it's God Himself who identifies man's need. You see that? God Himself identifies man's need. It is not good for the man to be alone. God does that. It's not good. Right? Adam is not the one that says this, but God. But we don't see God acting yet. God recognizes that there's a, that, that man has a need or knows that, God, that man has a need, but we don't see God acting yet until verse 21, right? But God wants Adam to recognize this need. I want you to notice this. He makes Adam go through a process here of naming animal after animal. Look at verse 19. Out of the ground, God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brings them to the man, the man, think about this, spends who knows how much time naming whatever animals God was bringing before him. And he's naming them animal after animal after animal. That was kind of, would have been a fun privilege, right? Gives Adam the task of naming all these animals. And it's through this task that Adam comes to realize his need. Right? He's seeing animal after animal. He's naming them. But he's being forced also to consider their, their nature, their, their, their basic makeup. And as he does so, he realizes, that, he realizes that no one matches him. No one matches him. He At the end of verse 20, But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. That word there, helper, has the idea of support, of an assistant, of a partner, if you will. And suitable has the idea of corresponding to him. Corresponding to him. Someone who was his, his perfect match. It couldn't be another animal, right? There goes bestiality out the window, right? Which we're beginning to see even in our culture today. Explicit and implicit and people heading that direction. There are people who are not wanting to marry their pet, you know, and have a wonderful life with their pet. So, you know, as Adam is is naming animal after animal, his perfect match wouldn't have been an animal. It could not be someone of the same gender, right? Because they're made differently as we're going to see. It's got to be someone who is his equal, someone who is his perfect complement, someone who is his perfect match. That's what it means, someone suitable, corresponding to him. And so note, he goes through this process of naming all of these animals, and there is a realization of his incompleteness, of the fact that he himself needs a companion. And so having shown him this, right, verse 21 So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and, implied God, closed up the flesh at that place. Verse 22, the Lord Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. This is amazing here. Think about this. I think that so often we read Scripture, we're so familiar with passages like these, that we miss the, the, the significance of just deep meditation, brethren, especially in the light of what we're seeing in our culture today, right? Marriage had nothing to do with Adam. Marriage was God's purpose and idea, wasn't it? What is Adam doing right now? He's asleep. He's out, right? And notice all of the, the divine action verbs, right? Notice all of the divine action verbs. Verse 21, God caused a deep sleep. And God took one of his ribs, and God closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. Six different divine action verbs there. To emphasize, as Moses is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? as good students of the Bible and interpreters of Scripture, repetition means something, doesn't it? And when over and over again Moses is saying, God did this, 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 God did this six different times, the, the, the message that we should get, part of the message is this, marriage has nothing to do with me first and foremost. God is the one who did this. It's God's design and God's idea. Right? He did all of this. The first marriage, brethren, was God's idea and it has been God's purpose and idea ever since, right? Later on, we'll talk about an implication of this. We don't have a right then as creatures to redefine marriage or to do away with it, right? Or to distort it, to twist it. Because this is is a God thing, a divine thing. So there's this beautiful woman, obviously. And look at man's response in verse 23. The man said, these are the first recorded words from a human being, right? And you know what it is? First recorded words, brethren, in verse 23, by a human being, it's from a man, about a woman, and it's poetry, right? It's poetry. See, ladies, I'm even going to bat for you guys right now, right? That we as husbands, beginning with this husband, should be doing a little more poetry, right, honey? Yeah. <laughs> so verse 23, think about this. Here's his response as he sees this woman, Right, the man said, "Verse twenty-three. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Whoa, Man." Right? I think that's how you. I think that's how we need to read it. Okay, <laughs> Woman, because she was taken out of Man. Again, poetry. That's the genre here. She's part of me, taken from me for me. Amazing. Not in a self-centered way, right? He doesn't have sin. God, you for me. The Hebrew poetry here in repetition is a, he's a very excited man. These are not poetic words of, of condescension about the woman, right? This woman, right? No, these are, this is exuberant praise and celebration. This is a happy man. This is a thankful man who knows that God has been good to him by giving him this precious gift. Every time I, I read this, brothers and sisters, I personally get convicted because I submit to you That we have seasons of life, moments in our marriages, where I think as husbands we forget to have this kind of an attitude, right? Think about that, brothers. If you're married, and even for those of you who are prepping to be married in the future, right? Do we celebrate our spouses like this? Even you ladies, right? Uh, As a concentric circle point of application here. Going out a little bit. What about you wives for your husbands, Is there a sense of celebratory gratitude in terms of the way that you think about your spouse? Right. I think that for us as husbands especially, when we are walking by the Spirit and we're submitting ourselves to the Word of God, um, we are going to have this kind of celebratory spirit towards our wives and celebrate them. And see, God is a good God who has given us our spouse for His glory and for our good, rather than think, man, this spouse that I have, God has given me the short end of the stick. Right? I wish I had somebody different. Or this was not what I expected. That kind of addresses our unmet expectations, doesn't it? Our sense of self-entitlement in marriage. To go back and think the, the root of that and of discontentment is a lack of gratitude. A lack of happiness and a sense of God is enough in this and this is his good and perfect gift for me. Whether I fully see that or not in the moment. So this is Such a convicting text here for all of us. Moses then gives his own commentary on this first marriage, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Right? We'll talk about this later on, an implication of this. By the way, that particular verse, verse 24, later in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5, Jesus attributes these very words as coming from God himself. So think about that even as we were talking well some of you are going to be in second service about the inspiration of scripture the authority the inerrancy of scripture right this is moses penning these words under the inspiration of the spirit verse 24 but jesus in matthew matthew 19 attributes those words as coming from god himself great great text so there will be this leaving and cleaving leaving doesn't mean they're to, you're going to abandon your parents but that now the primary relationship will be his wife, right? His primary relationship will be his wife. And the idea of joined or or cleave, we sometimes talk about leaving and and cleaving, right? To cleave is to be fused with someone else, to be glued together with someone else. Think about that. In your your marriage with your spouse, you are one with them. As I'm looking at it, I'm seeing some couples out there, right? I see two people sitting next to each other. But in the eyes of God, you are one. And so therefore, if we are one, and God has joined us together to be one, then there needs to be functional oneness. In our thinking, in our spiritual lives together, in our finances, we share all things together. There shouldn't be, let me use this as an example, a separate account of money. There shouldn't be separate accounts. That is actually sinful, rebelling against God's God's, um, principles. If you are one, then you need to function as one, And everything now belongs to one another. In fact, your own body belongs to your husband. And and husband's, your wife's body belongs to you. We're going to talk about that later on in one of the sessions as well. And the implications of that. So we are one. We are fused together and glued together as one. Notice verse 25. Before sin, perfect, unhindered fellowship. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We'll talk about this a little bit more Later on next week, I want to get into some implications and principles that we can glean about marriage and family from these foundational principles, okay? But I wanted to open it up for a few questions, okay, 10 minutes or so. I realize that we started a little bit late today, so forgive me for starting a little bit late with uh, questions, but any questions initially about anything? Yes, ma'am. Yes, yes, ma'am. And um, another resource called Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll make sure that I include those on here. Yeah, Rediscovering the Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by uh, John Piper and Wayne Grudem is a book that came out about 15 years ago, maybe early 2000s, that you ought to pick up if you're really interested in reading more about this. Right, early 2000s. And um, and then God, Marriage, and Family by Andreas, with an S at the end. Andreas Kostenberger with a K. Great resource. So, yeah. And then some a couple of other resources, too, sister. I can pass those on if you want, yeah. Any other questions? Wow, crystal clear, huh? Everything. So, just so you guys know, we're going to go from foundations. Obviously, we're gonna, we want to talk about... Um, Uh, individual um, roles within marriage, the idea of equality complementarianism. We're going to get into that next week a little bit. The, the, The principle biblically that we are equal as men and women, but there are distinct roles and responsibilities that are according to God's design, and those flesh themselves out in the context of a marriage. Those flesh themselves out in the context of leadership in the church. Those flesh themselves out even in the context of society in some ways, though in a very limited way. Um, but we want to talk about uh, some of that complementarianism and what that means. That is a massive issue right now in broader evangelical circles. Okay, again, but what I mean by that is people who profess to know Christ, who are followers of Jesus. That's under attack right now. But it's very much biblical. And so, um, just have your questions ready to go along those lines. Okay, as you read up a little bit on complementarianism, that's not anything anyone came up with. That's really. Uh, surfaces from the principles of the word of god, okay? Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Uh, you, I'm just curious how did you get from this, this you know, god created marriage to the traditional like, marriage vows that we make? Yeah. Well, I think there there's di- there's different uh, arguments about that. Obviously, that just depends also on on nation contexts, right? Obviously in our country, um a lot of that is The 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 going back to the Constitution, even in the connection to the authority of the state right in the federal government, obviously, as biblical Christians, we understand Romans 13. We understand the the fact that we are under the laws of the land, but that's got limitations. So one of the key issues related to your question is people are pushing back on that now. Like, well, what's a certificate of marriage anyway? Right. Why do we have to do that? Well, in our context here in America, we have a government, right? Now, the government doesn't always act for the protection of the innocent, but I think that because of Romans 13 and Titus chapter three, right, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities. One of the things in our country, though, people are trying to do away with it, is the reality of the the, um, the marriage ceremony, and make sure that making sure that you are acknowledged by the government of the United States as a as a legally married couple. Right, and then you get into issues of divorce and what does that mean, separation. So I think for us, it goes a lot to back, back to our, our founding fathers, right? And being subject to the laws of the land. But it really depends on, on also what nations you're talking about because traveling in the past in Southeast Asia, Latin America, boy, there were some contexts where people were living together and there was very much a perspective even from the government that, hey, as long as they're living together, they're legally married. So there's no real submission to government. So one last question. What should we be asking? What's that, sir? What should, we be asking? what should we be asking? Well, as you guys wrestle with the truth, right? And even you see, you're, 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 you guys are all in work contexts as mission, missionaries living on mission, fulfilling the Great Commission, neighborhoods. Relationships that you have even with family members who might not be believers, right? Who are pushing back against some of these things. I think part of the the um, the goal of this is to know the truth, yes, but to be able to defend it, right? To have um, a compelling um, compelling uh, argument from Scripture. See, we have three choices right now as Christians living in the conditions that we're living in in our society, right? We can either get combative, right? Which some of us can do that. And we do have to fight for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But for some people, what that means is we're duking it out and we're acting in the flesh just like the non-believers, right? So we can get combative. Um, We could capitulate, by which I mean we can surrender, right? Ground to the enemy and say, yeah, yeah, things are different. You know, cultures are different. We can capitulate, you know? We need to just do things differently or go go away from God's so-called God's uh, design for marriage. Or we can... Make sure that we're clear on the biblical issues. It becomes a conviction of our hearts, and we can provide a compelling argument and a defense for what we believe, right? Leading to, hopefully, a presentation of the gospel. So that's a lot of it as we wrestle through some of these sessions. Um, Please don't be afraid of asking some of those pertinent questions. And if we don't know the answer, we'll let you know that, okay? Hey, I don't know the answer right now, but I'm going to get it for you, okay? Or I'll just have Andre come up here, and he can answer all your questions for (laughs) Or Derek. <laughs> so, all right, let me pray for us, brethren. Okay? Thank you for being here. Father, thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy upon us as your people. I thank you for the great reality that your word is truth, and truth means reality, as opposed to falsehood, as opposed to what is an illusion. And that is how Jesus defines his word. His word is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So, Thank you, Father, that we have your word. I pray that as we continue to walk through this series and we talk about hard things. These are hard issues, but what a wonderful thing to have the clarity of your word. And, Father, where, wherever we need to apply wisdom and um, uh, making sure that we uh, apply these principles, give us that wisdom and understanding, even as Pastor Paul read from Proverbs 4 today, that we need to acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Help us to do that. We pray personally as families and collectively as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, brethren.